Good morning. Today we're reading uh, portions of Genesis chapter 41. We'll be reading from verse 14 to 57. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. 
Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is God's word. So it had been about 13 years, 13 years since Joseph, as a teenager, was trafficked away from his home in Canaan, away from his family, down to Egypt and forced into servitude. He was, after being in servitude, he was unjustly imprisoned. He was forgotten by his family. He was forgotten by the outside world. But here in, in, this, in this chapter of Genesis history we see Joseph's sudden, dramatic uh, transformation, his rise from obscurity to power. It was Rosaria Butterfield, and I can't remember exactly where she wrote this, but she wrote it. Uh, She said, God doesn't move quickly, but when he moves, he moves suddenly. We want him to move quickly, but when he does move, it's sudden. 
And we very much see that here. We are working through the Genesis history to discover how God proclaimed his plan for salvation, his plan for saving all of humanity. He revealed it to one family, Abraham, Sarah, and their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. So we're working our way through the history of a family to see how God has worked in history to bring hope and healing and salvation uh, to the human race. And as we see in Joseph's life, unplanned, unexpected hardships are not detours, are not obstacles to God's purposes. They may be obstacles to your purposes, but they're not, they're not, uh, they're not detours from God's purposes in your life. Actually, for Joseph, and I think for you and me, hardship is the crucible. It is, it is the very training ground for our development. So last week, we, we saw how Joseph was faithful in his hardship. This week, we're going to focus on how in Joseph's faithfulness, we see an illustration of Christian stewardship. Joseph was a faithful steward. Being a steward is simply this. Being a steward is developing what God has entrusted to you. Stewardship is your nurturing, cultivating, caring for, managing whatever God has given to you. God didn't allow Joseph's hardship to render him useless. Some of you who know me know this story. So I didn't plan on having cancer, but I tell people God loves me so much that he's given it to me several times. And the second time was a big one years ago. And during that time where I wasn't doing very much other than feeling pretty lousy, I read a little pamphlet. Uh, that John Piper and David Pallison wrote, because they had cancer at some point, and they called it, Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's now a chapter in the book on our book table, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. But in that, in that pamphlet, Don't Waste Your Cancer, I found some helpful wisdom. For instance, they wrote, You will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we end up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances from Luke chapter 21. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity To bear witness. And they went on to write, so it is with cancer, or fill in your struggle. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. Here's a golden opportunity to show that He is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Joseph didn't waste his servitude, Joseph didn't waste his imprisonment. God can use anybody, anywhere. Your hardship cannot, 
Your hardship cannot make you useless. God has plans for you. And today, I want to talk about the usefulness that God entrusts to you if you entrust your life to him. The usefulness that God entrusts to you and the usefulness that God requires of you. And I want to talk to you about the usefulness that God demonstrates for you. So the usefulness that God entrusts, the usefulness that God requires and the usefulness that God demonstrates for us. God entrusts a calling to your life, spiritual gifts to you that benefit others, and abilities that you pick up along the way. And he develops all of these things that he entrusts to you under pressure. Joseph was a steward. And the first thing we see uh, through his struggles is, He's a steward of dreams. He's a steward of his own dreams, except that didn't mean that God gave him an an interpretation of them. His own dreams that he had as a kid, you might remember them, they remained a mystery to Joseph. As he grew up, as he became a young man, then through servitude, then in prison, the dreams God gave Joseph were not revealed to him. He still doesn't know what his own dreams mean. He's got to patiently endure and ponder them. But God, as a spiritual gift, gives him the ability to prophetically interpretate. Interpretate. There's a new word for you. God gives him the spiritual gift of being able to prophetically interpret other people's dreams. The cupbearer of Pharaoh. The baker of Pharaoh. These are politicians that Joseph met in prison years before political prisoners, and Joseph interpreted successfully their dreams. Exactly, precisely. But even in the midst of that, Joseph was forgotten for his good deed, for his success. He was forgotten, and Joseph sat there in prison. Although the cupbearer got out, Joseph sat there in prison for another two years. And as Rosaria Butterfield said, God doesn't move quickly, but he moves suddenly. And sure enough, a door after two years and after 13 years of suffering, a door opens up to interpret another dream. And this time it's the grand stage, right? He's, this is, he's going to the White House to interpret a dream here. It's Pharaoh's dreams. And it is Pharaoh who says to him, hey, I hear that you interpret dreams well and joseph's response is very interesting in verse 16 joseph says to pharaoh it is not in me it is not in me god will give pharaoh a favorable answer and right there in joseph's statement you see the essence of what it means to be a steward what you manage belongs to someone else joseph was not only a steward of a spiritual gift He was a steward of his reputation. He was managing well his reputation. In verse 38, after he interprets Pharaoh's dream and after he suggests to Pharaoh a very comprehensive, uh, simple, but somewhat complex plan for how to save the nation and eventually the entire region, from an upcoming famine, Pharaoh's response is, can we find a man like this? 
In whom is the spirit of God? And so Pharaoh gives Joseph immense authority. Uh, whether, whether Pharaoh had something like a presidential cabinet and Joseph was one of many viceroy or vizier types or, or whether he gave that authority to Joseph, we don't know. Uh, but basically, Pharaoh entrusts to Joseph the kind of power that the British prime minister has, the kind of power that our own secretary of state would have. And then he, he gives Joseph his signet ring, which basically means that wherever Joseph goes in managing Pharaoh's affairs, he carries the king's authority with him. And then Pharaoh gives him a new name, and I'm not going to pronounce it now because I'm not even looking at it. Johanna nailed it. But that name essentially means, this is the name that the Egyptian king gives to Joseph, an Egyptian name. It means God speaks and lives. And he gives her an aristocratic wife because now he is a nobleman and a politician. Whereas his own family had essentially disowned him, the Egyptians are basically adopting him as one of their own. And there's a proverb in Proverbs 17 that says, A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance as one of the brothers. You see, the Egyptians... The pagan Egyptians saw God's hand in Joseph's character and in his actions. Not only in words, you see, but in his deeds, Joseph's witness was a good reputation. So he was a steward of dreams and he was a steward of his reputation. I don't interpret people's dreams, but I do have a reputation to manage. He was also a steward of his administrative talents. This is really where, in pragmatic ways, the rubber meets the road with Joseph and the Egyptians. Think about it. Where did Joseph develop his abilities as an organizer, as an administrator, as a, as a good listener and a problem solver? He developed this stuff as a servant. He developed all of this not only as a servant, but he developed it in prison. Joseph had, for 13 years, no political rights. None. And still in that process, he made everybody around him prosper. Hardship was the training ground for all that God had entrusted to him. And what sums all of this up is the name that Joseph gave to his younger son. We'll probably talk about Manasseh and the, name, the meaning of that name later on. But for today's topic, what's really important to understand is why Joseph named his second son Ephraim. Because the name basically means to be fruitful. And Joseph sums up his entire experience in verse 52. He names his son Ephraim because, this is what he said, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the question I have for you to think about now is this. Are you being fruitful in the land of your affliction? Are you being productive in your own hardship? What God entrusts to you, whether it's a calling or a talent or an experience or a spiritual gift, whatever he entrusts to you, he requires you to cultivate even 
in hardship. Have you ever considered the fact that your hardship is not an obstacle, but an opportunity? In Luke chapter 21, the evangelist records a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the temple in Jerusalem. They're there in the temple courts and Jesus is just watching people. He was a really great people watcher. And he's watching people and he makes an interesting observation that he shares with his disciples. Luke records it this way. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. You see, you see what Jesus reveals to us, that God puts the greatest value on what people give out of their weakness. One of the most generous Christians I have known was a man who suffered from bipolar disorder. He had financial means. He had abundant finances. But he had these depressive episodes that would haunt him. And sometimes for months. And, and in those episodes and, and during those, those spirals downward, he would really struggle to just come to a worship service like this, to just be out in public to meet with people, to pray with people, to listen to other people, tell them the, the concerns and the problems uh, that, that, that they had. If you've ever just been exhausted on a particular day or week and you feel like you can't hear one more difficult story or circumstance or question from somebody, imagine feeling that way for five months nonstop. This was his struggle. He was financially rich. He was spiritually poor. And in a moment of discouragement where he's sharing this with me, I reminded him of the widow. And Jesus said, gave up a vast amount of wealth because he gave, she gave from her poverty. And I said to him, you know, in these times, in these swings, when you get up out of bed and you come to worship with God's people, when you sit down to pray for another human being, when you exercise the greatest amount of psychological energy to listen to another person, share their need or their story with you, you, my brother, are giving out of your poverty. And that is precious to God. Biblically speaking, people like Joseph... People like, centuries later, Daniel. Very similar situation. Faithful as a stranger in a foreign land in a government position. People like Ruth and Esther gave out of their suffering, gave out of their poverty, and in very practical ways redeemed an entire group of people. Horatio Spafford and his wife in the 1820s, lost all four of their daughters in a shipwreck. Horatio Spafford is the one who wrote the hymn, When peace, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. 
And when Spafford penned those words that we will sing later this morning, he was giving out of his poverty. And I know sometimes you think, and maybe you're thinking this way right now, I have nothing to offer. I'm exhausted. I'm sick. I'm poor. I'm tired. I'm discouraged. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it's not true that you have nothing to offer. It's not true. The most noble and courageous offerings flow by faith out of your poverty. So I want to encourage you to see your hardship as an opportunity to seek God. You are never too poor. You are never too destitute. You are never too discouraged to learn from him. Maybe it's in a prison cell. Maybe your prison cell is your family situation or your job situation. Or maybe the land of your affliction is what's going on in your own head. But see your hardship as an opportunity to see God and like Joseph did to mature and to serve other people. Ask yourself, are your excuses for burying your talents in your hardship legitimate reasons to do or say nothing? Look, of course, there are times when, you know, emotionally or, or physically, financially, we're hurting. We're hurting. We, we can't lead others. We can't advise people. We can't protect them. We can't carry other people because... We're the ones who need to be carried. That's a legitimate concern. That's a le- there are times in our lives where we need to be carried and we cannot carry other people. Of course. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that, but check this out. This is what I'm saying. You have to resist the mentality that says to yourself, because I'm hurting, I'm off limits. If a slave in prison could steward what God had entrusted to him, what God had required of him, so can you. And the beautiful thing about Christianity, because you may still be saying, no, I don't believe you. Okay, fine. You don't have to believe me. That's not why I'm here. I'm hoping you will listen to God. What God requires of you in your hardship, he has already demonstrated for you in Jesus Christ's hardship. He will not ask you to do a single thing that Jesus has not already done ahead of you. The author of the book of Hebrews said it was fitting. It was fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Isn't that interesting that Jesus, the son of God was already perfect, but as a human being, what perfected his experience and he was representing humanity, what perfected the human experience was Jesus, the son of God suffering. God, the father entrusted to God, the son, a mission. And the mission was save the people I love. 
And Jesus experienced a physical and, and psychological poverty that was infinitely greater than what Joseph experienced in the dark cell. What he experienced when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. What he experienced when he was thrown in a pit and sold by his own brothers into a foreign land. The isolation, the discouragement, the loneliness, the disenfranchisement. What he must have suffered through in a prison cell, forgotten for years, paled in comparison to what Jesus suffered as a human being. But in the suffering of God the Son, we are given a picture of what it looks like to be useful in your hardship. Jesus remained a steward of all that God entrusted to him. Jesus remained a steward of the mission that God gave him. Where you and I fail to steward well what he's given to us. Hey, sometimes, sometimes we don't want to serve and, and be a blessing when we're struggling. How, how many times have we not wanted to serve and be a blessing when we're doing perfectly fine? We've all failed at, at serving and, and, in, and, and cultivating all that God has entrusted to us. Jesus did not. Jesus represented you. Jesus represented me in fully completing the mission that God had entrusted for him to do. That is the demonstration of how. It's not only our salvation. It's a demonstration of how to trust God with all that he's entrusted to you, even in hardship. Romans 5 says... God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what convinces us that God loves us. You and I can trust and believe that God loves us because Jesus fulfilled the mission that God had entrusted to him. Jesus was a faithful steward of God's salvation. And that's the proof. That is why you and I can say, Jesus loves me. So you, because Jesus was fruitful in his affliction, you be fruitful in yours. You know, back to that situation in my life where I didn't feel like I was very productive. Although I got to admit, every time... I felt like I was being more productive in my suffering. That's why I say God loves me so much. He's given me many, many sufferings because every time I get a little better at it. I get a little better at trusting him and trying to be useful to my family and to other people every time I suffer. doesn't mean I don't complain and rage and wag my fist at God, but he loves me so much. He says, hey, let's try that again. You will be even more useful the next time around. Back to what John Piper and David Pallison said in, in Don't Waste Your Cancer. And I'll end on this point. They said, you will waste your cancer, and you can fill in the blank with anything right now that you're thinking of. You will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan's and God's designs in your hardship are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die. 
It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. God's design is to wean you off of the breast of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. And like Joseph, as you learn to take nourishment from Jesus in your hardship, he will equip you to nourish other people in theirs. Your hardship cannot, cannot, and by the grace of God, will not make you useless, my friends. Hardship is an opportunity to give out of our poverty, to serve out of our weakness, and to be fruitful strangers in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the witness of Joseph, your servant, uh, that although he was imprisoned uh, by people, he ultimately served and worked for you. Thank you that his witness, though he was an imperfect human being, uh, points us to your perfect son, the author and founder of our salvation, who demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still still sinners, died for us. Thank you that Jesus was fruitful in the land of his affliction. And by faith, we ask that you would give us the faith to be fruitful and productive in our own affliction. Amen.